You're listening to Stage Combat, a mental health story of what really happened behind the scenes at the Goodspeed Opera House in East Haddam, Connecticut, during its 2019 production of Billy Elliot, the musical. Stage Combat is a true story of the narrator's personal experience during his mental health journey from 2019 to 2023. This podcast contains actor portrayals of actual events. The names of the members of the cast of Billy Elliot have been changed. Stage Combat contains strong language and addresses mental illness. Check the show notes for more details. Haywood Productions LLC offered Goodspeed Musicals, Inc., and the Goodspeed Opera House Foundation, Inc., the opportunity to include a statement in each episode of Stage Combat, including an option to deny the events as depicted. They declined. Haywood Productions also offered Goodspeed's artistic director and managing director the opportunity to appear on this podcast to discuss the narrator's account of his experience at the Goodspeed Opera House. They both declined. It's the summer of 2021. I've sued the Goodspeed, and we are in full litigation mode. And my lawyer and I are realizing we've got our work cut out for us because we have to convince a jury in a rural county in Connecticut that acting is a real job. There's a misconception across the board when it comes to acting that it's just, you know, something fun you get to do. It's glamorous. It's not really a real job. So we are working on securing an expert witness who can attest to the long, hard hours actors work, the countless hours without compensation just trying to get the job, that we compete against hundreds, sometimes thousands of other actors to get that job, and then we work countless hours without compensation just preparing for the role. We have to convince the jury that when we arrive to work for our employer, it's not just a play. It's not just a musical. It's a job with serious physical and emotional risk. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 9 of Stage Combat Discovery. Today is July 19th, 2021. And in response to my lawsuit, Goodspeed has filed what is called It's answer to my lawsuit. In the state of Connecticut, the court requires the defendant, in this case the Goodspeed, to go through each allegation, each paragraph of my lawsuit, and admit what is true and deny what is not. And the Goodspeed has denied just about everything. Plaintiff Sean Hayden had a panic attack. Denied. Plaintiff Sean Hayden said on Goodspeed's stage, I don't feel safe on stage with you. Denied. Plaintiff Sean Hayden reported a whistleblowing complaint. Denied. In fact, the Goodspeed uses the word denied or denies 478 times in its answer. Every denial is a punch to the gut. 
it is good speed saying that what I know happened did not happen. And while I know Goodspeed took this approach with my union, I did expect something different from them now that we are in a judicial proceeding. I at least expected Goodspeed to admit basic facts that were witnessed, basic facts that I have documented. The next day, I'm in physical therapy for the neck and back pain that I continue to suffer as a result of my panic and anxiety disorder. And I'm still thinking about Goodspeed's answer. Goodspeed has claimed as a defense in his answer. To the extent plaintiff has suffered any damages, which defendant denies, he has failed to mitigate, minimize, or avoid said damages. Failing to mitigate your damages means you did not take reasonable actions to minimize the extent of your injuries. And that really makes me angry because I gave them so many warnings and now hours of my life each week, they are consumed trying to keep this disorder under control. Hours with my therapist, my psychiatrist, my orthopedic doctor, the gym classes I'm hitting six days a week, the physical therapy that I'm doing right now at this moment, all just so I can function each day. It's now November, 2021. Over two years since I was fired as an actor from the Goodspeed, and I'm having a session with my psychiatrist, Dr. Mike. I tell him I have a new anxiety symptom. It's called Globus. It's the overwhelming sensation that something is blocking your throat. When it comes on, I can't speak, I can't breathe, I throw my head back, open my mouth as wide as I can, and make a gasping noise, like some creature out of Jurassic World. Dr. Mike looks at me a moment and says, So, where do you think you are now, in terms of being able to perform again? I tell him I recently went to the Met to see an art exhibit of paintings by Alice Neal. She's an American artist known for her vivid portraits. If everyone can just step in, please. I figured paintings were far enough removed from the world of theater, so I couldn't possibly have any kind of adverse psychological reaction. Now, we've named this Alice Neal exhibit at the Met. People come first. It's the first museum retrospective. But looking at her paintings, I felt very confused. I sensed all these emotions, but it felt like they were trapped behind a dam, unable to surface. I tell Dr. Mike that when I pick up a theater script, something strange happens. I used to feel immediately the internal life of the character's voice inside me when I read the lines. Now, there's just emptiness. I'm still terrified of rehearsal spaces and theaters. I don't play the piano anymore. And I'm physically unable to sing. Nothing comes out of my mouth when I try. I just get a sick feeling in my stomach. 
Dr. Mike definitively tells me something that I've been dreading to hear. What I've been sensing for some time. He writes in a medical opinion letter. It is highly unlikely Sean will return to the theater industry due to the trauma he experienced by the Goodspeed. And seeing it in black and white forces me to face this stark reality. I know I said at the beginning of this story that no one dies. But part of me did die in that opera house. I don't even know how to start to grieve the loss of who I was. Merry Christmas, baby. Rain is coming out to play. It's December 19th, 2021, six days before Christmas. And I'm looking at our Christmas tree. Silver ornaments are on the tree this year. Every Christmas, honey. Ian and I put it up a couple of weeks ago. Well, Ian mostly. Normally, that would be something I would enjoy. Which ornaments to select, where they're placed, the composition, you know, the creative stuff. But since Billy Elliot, I can't even look at a Christmas tree the same way. At around 6 p.m., I check my email. There's a message from my lawyer. It's about my lawsuit against the Goodspeed. It's about the discovery. Discovery is the process in a lawsuit where each side collects information from the other side to prepare for trial. Each party can ask a series of questions called interrogatories, which must be answered under oath. And each party can serve request for production to request documents from the other party. The email contains Goodspeed's answers to our discovery request. It also contains the Goodspeed's internal documents. For over two years, I've racked my brain, trying to figure out what really happened at the Goodspeed. Why did no one ever ask me if I was okay? Why did people just stop talking to me? How did Chad get away with so much? Why was I accused of a crime? Why was I so abruptly fired? On this December night, over two years after Billy Elliot's final curtain, I finally learn what you already know. Ian and I take our laptop into the bedroom and squeeze two chairs up to a desk. We start pouring through emails between Bradley G. Spockman, Donna Lynn Hilton, Gabriel Berry, Michael Gennaro, 
Rachel Tischler, and Chad. Sometimes we gasp. Sometimes we shout. Sometimes I cry. Because for the first time, I'm seeing what Chad was actually doing behind the scenes. I'm seeing all of Chad's lies. The lies he told to Bradley G. Spockman. Hey, Brad. So he comes up to me backstage. The and he lies he told to happy. Rachel Tischler. Sean Hayden called me a faggot. The lies that no one ever told me about. Suddenly, Ian points to my laptop and says, Sean, look. It's Rachel Tischler's notes from her first meeting with Chad where she wrote, Equity involvement in the last six months. TROs. Racial slurs. Oh my god. Racial slurs. Racial slurs? This is what was going on? Ian asks me, What are TROs? Temporary restraining orders. That's what lawyers call them. TROs. The situation at the Goodspeed with Chad was far worse than I ever knew. And then I see Chad's obsession with me. I'm doing some outside investigation. Sean, Sean blocked me from his social Sean media. keeps to himself off I stage. Time. How long it took Sean to arrive on the car. In what HR department in any company would this not be a red flag? Then I see that Goodspeed told Chad to keep monitoring me, keep bringing information. I hope you will continue to let me and Brad know if anything additional should occur, no matter how small. Like he was some kind of informant for the Goodspeed. I tell Ian, that's why Chad was always hovering around me, watching me. Holy shit. Not only was... Chad actively harassing me? It seems like my employer was an accomplice to that harassment. Then I learned, for the first time, that I was put under a secret investigation. Launched into investigation Chad's report has essentially begun an official investigation into Sean's... An investigation with no findings and no final report. And I put it all together. This is why no one was talking to me. Because Chad was free to spread his lies and the fact I was under investigation to anyone. Because these documents show that Goodspeed imposed no confidentiality restrictions. And then I see that Donalyn Hilton and Rachel Tischler discovered that Chad was a liar. To Actors Equity Association this morning, that information was not. This is told very him. concerning. It's disturbing to think that Chad would be untruthful about this. And then it hits me. They knew how bad things really were with Chad before I collapsed, and they kept it from me. I would like a sit down with you and Donna Lynn, please. I would be glad to have another conversation. But to my knowledge, there have been no new events since last week. Ian, they had the chance to do something before I collapsed. I could have been spared the last two years of hell. 
I run out of the bedroom and into the kitchen. I'm shaking and my globus is kicking in. I can't get my breathing under control. Ian says, Why didn't they settle your case a year ago? They had to have known you'd see all of this if you filed the lawsuit. Because they're the good speed, Ian, and apparently they don't think they're accountable to anyone. Later, Ian and I return to the bedroom and dive back into the documents. For over two years, I've gone over it and over it, wondering how was Chad able to get away with so much? This 25-year-old actor in his second professional job, a last-minute replacement. And now, I think I understand how. Bradley G. Spockman. I learned that Spockman labeled me as difficult in an email to management. Sean is difficult. When the only thing that had happened was I said I didn't feel safe in his rehearsal. And then I see Spockman's show report. The show report prepared just an hour after my collapse. Good show. No problems. Accidents, injuries, none. And I literally gasp. Where is my collapse? Because it's not in here. What the fuck? handle broke off tonight. We'll put in a replacement tomorrow. But he doesn't mention an actor collapsed and was dragged off the stage? Then I see all the one-sided accounts from Chad that Spockman kept sending to management without ever questioning me about any of them. Chad's fabricated backstage altercation. So he comes up to me backstage, and he was apparently the guys are still at the Chad's false complaint that became the flawed Naomi memo. Now Sean says I purposely punched him in the back. Sean felt that Chad had purposefully punched him in the back. This has rapidly become a capital P problem. And Chad's fabricated death threat. I finally learned what went down. It's my final performance of Billy Elliot. And Chad and I are in the middle of the kitchen fight stage combat sequence in Act 2. Near the end of the fight, Chad suddenly yells in my face, causing me to stop the combat sequence. After the scene, I remain on stage. Chad then runs backstage and starts yelling obscenities. Fuck! What the fuck? Fuck! He then makes a report to, guess who? Naomi, Spockman's underling. Chad tells her, During the kitchen fight, Sean said, I'm gonna fucking kill you! When what actually happened was Chad yelled, Fuck! in my face. It's brilliantly malicious because Chad knows as he's speaking to Naomi, that I can't defend myself. He knows I'm still on stage working for the rest of the second act. And I think back to that moment in the kitchen fight during my final performance when Chad yelled fuck. Wait, what is happening? That's not in the script, yelling fuck in my face. You can't do that in a dangerous choreographed fight sequence. So what is Chad doing? Was this part of Chad's master plan? 
to tell management that I threatened to kill him, and when he yelled fuck in my face, it was all for show. An imaginary reaction to an imaginary death threat. And after Chad reports the death threat to Naomi, Bradley G. Spockman, right on cue, sends Chad's one-sided account straight to management without ever questioning me. Three hundred and seventy pages later, I'm emotionally hollowed out. I walk into our living room and look at the Christmas tree. I don't understand what kind of people can do the things that I've read about tonight. And I don't understand why. I see my face in a silver Christmas ornament. I move just slightly to the right, and my face becomes distorted, like I'm in a carnival funhouse. Move back to the left, and my image is clear again, staring right back at me. The narrative of what happened at the good speed has haunted me for over two years, but now I have to merge the narrative that's been in my mind with all the secrets that I learned about tonight. Every action at the good speed, every word, every blank stare, every moment of silence has to be relearned, revisited, re-experienced. Haywood Productions offered The Goodspeed the opportunity to include a statement within this episode. The Goodspeed declined. Goodspeed's artistic director and managing director declined an invitation to appear on this podcast to discuss the narrator's account of his experience at the Goodspeed Opera House. Coming up on the next episode of Stage Combat, a mental health story. And then there's me. The guy at 113th and Broadway? Yep. I'm the guy dry heaving on the sidewalk as everyone walks hey, around me. Last night, I was in a suspended state of shock. But today, I'm literally sick over what I've read. Stay tuned for a post-show talkback with Sean and his guest, actor Brian Shepard. And right away, I went numb from my ears down. I got tingly in my feet. I got hot. I could feel everything kind of warming up and then numb and then ice cold. I was getting this palpable, almost like shakes and tremors. And that was the very first one. And then it snowballed from there and repeated itself every single day. That's coming up now. Hello, Stage Combat listeners, and welcome to the post-show talkback for Episode 9, Discovery. This is Sean Hayden, and just a content warning, this talkback 
will contain a discussion about passive suicidal thoughts. So please proceed with caution. I'm really happy that we're doing something a little different today. We have as our guest a fellow actor. His name is Brian Shepard. And Brian is a New York City-based actor. He's appeared on stages across the country and also on TV and AMC's The Walking Dead, NBC's Law and Order, SUV, and FBI. Welcome to Stage Combat, Brian. So happy to be here. Thank you very much. Brian, so we met because you reached out on social media. I don't believe we even had an episode out yet. And you had shared one of our videos. I think it was the My Name is Sean video where I where I was introducing myself to social media and saying I had a panic attack and, I, and I'm doing a podcast about it. And I was really touched because you shared in your story, you wrote... If you've been through this, you'll know every day can be a challenge. I fought this for decades. Yes. And I reached out to you to say, you know, thank you for sharing that and just to learn a little bit more about you. When was your first panic attack? Earliest I remember, I was actually in graduate school. You know, I had always dealt with nerves and things like this. But I remember walking into class. I was doing a Meisner exercise and knock at the door. And I remember knocking on the door and I make my entrance and I think the teacher actually stopped me immediately. I had done something they deemed incorrect, I guess. And right away, I went numb from my ears down. I got tingly in my feet. I got hot. I could feel everything kind of warming up and then numb and then ice cold. I was getting this palpable, almost like shakes and tremors. And that was the very first one. And then it snowballed from there and repeated itself every single day. So having panic attacks, this is something that's been a part of your life every day. Yes, it has. It has. I don't recall any issue with it before that. But from that moment, I have continued to battle with it and try to manage it over the years. And it comes and goes in big waves, but it's always present. When you look back now, do you have some insights as to what maybe caused that first panic attack? Yeah. I think from walking into a classroom with, you know, during my training with a a teacher and a person that is so intense and kind of commandeering and downright terrifying, I think that was like the catalyst for it. I had never faced that in my life. I had never faced that kind of teardown before of my psyche and my emotions and things. I trace all of it back to that. I still hear that voice in my head, the, the haunting kind of critiques of my work coming from that person, even, you know, 15 years later. Yeah, you're not the first person that I've heard that from. You know, I've heard people talking about panic attacks when we're talking about performing artists and actually going back to conservatory or art school and the manner in which they were handled by their instructors, abusive patterns, perhaps and the way the students were handled. Yeah, I, I know I'm not alone in, in these thoughts over the years. You know, I've had a lot of people come, come out of the woodwork, even from my program or from other programs saying, hey, this kind of idea of I'm going to break you down as an actor and rebuild you in my likeness really is quite destructive and has played a part in everything that's happened in my life since. Yeah. You know, we spoke to a mental health counselor who's also an actor, and she was pointing out the idea of these schools you know, they chip away at you. They try to tear you down. But where is the aftercare? It's like, great. You had, <laughs> you had a breakthrough. You're, you're vulnerable. You're, 
crying your eyes out or whatever the scene requires, but there is no aftercare. And then there's some resulting damage and trauma as a result of that. Sure. Uh, when you talked about in the director episode, you talked about the feeling that you got when he told you how great you were and how how magnificent you were and that you were loved. And that feeling of like of wholeness and fullness and having your gas tank topped off in a way and how it's almost unbelievable when those things happen. And I, I think I can relate to that. I hinged on every word that that person said. And when I got praise all of the two times that it ever happened, I was on top of the world. I felt like I could conquer anything. The other 98 times, though, were the ones that actually live with me. And I remember them and I'm constantly aware of them. How are you doing today in terms of managing your panic attacks? Is that something you're able to do? And if so, how have you gone about doing it? The way that I have slowly changed my life and my lifestyle outside of the work and outside of set or, or being in rehearsal has helped that. And, and I've done it in order to manage it. You know, I used to bartend, right? And then I realized like during the pandemic, hey, I don't have to do that anymore. I can design my life to support a healthy mental state. And so now my life, I have kind of changed it. And what are the changes you made? Getting out of the restaurant business and having working as a fly fishing guide in the mountains, you know, every day I'm sitting here in nature, finding a way to recenter so that when I am called to do the work on the wonderful days, I'm blessed to have that. I'm a little more centered and I haven't been dealing with the panic attacks on a daily basis. Now it's just when those happen. That's a little more. I can compartmentalize that a little bit easier and manage that. Uh, I just want to tell the listeners, because Brian and I have spoken before, but what the change that you're referring to is that you teach fly fishing uh, in rivers in the Catskills. Yeah, in the Catskills and in, in Central Park. Oh, in Central Park as well, which uh, sounds like would be a really good thing for your, anyone's mental health. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's definitely recentering and gets you away from some of the mind trash that I put onto myself or that was put onto me in the past. So it sounds like to me, what's worked for you from a management standpoint after living with this with many, many years is altering your lifestyle to try to find a path in your life that helps you best manage the panic attacks and the anxiety. Absolutely. A mentor of mine said to me a few years ago when I was, I was on a ledge saying, I think I'm going to quit. I can't do this. I'm going to throw my headshots out and call my agents and I'm, I'm just not cut out for this. And he just said, you need to worry about your life first. Worry about the life you're living and making yourself full and happy so that you're not running from one scary thing into another scary thing and pinballing back and forth. And, and that is what I've taken to heart. May I ask you, and I know this is rather personal, so what was probably the lowest point? Was there a point where dealing with the panic attacks or managing them at some point maybe seemed close to insurmountable for you? Yeah, absolutely. I think when it first came on the scene, I didn't treat it right away. I didn't know what it was. I, I thought that I just needed to live alone in silence. I was the same way. I was right. Yeah. Trying to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we, you know, I know the way I was trained was if you're not on your game and it's not happening, then you're not committed enough. You're not working hard enough. Yeah. And so I kept it quiet and I thought, oh, I have to be strong and I have to be a guy and I'm going to be tough. And yeah. this is part of the work you do as an actor. And I lived with it for so long. And then I remember driving down the highway one day and I looked, I was in, it was the middle of the night in Wisconsin in a snowstorm and I'm driving home from a 
Packers football game. And I look over and I think to myself, what if I spun off the road? And what if I hit that light pole? And then I think about it on the next light pole and the next. I'm like, what, who would care? And I think that was, that was the first passive suicidal thought. And it's, I had never had that before. It came entirely out of this, you know, now six month or a year of living in this state of panic every day, kind of, kind of whirlwind. Um, it, it appeared on the scene and I went home that night. I told my mother and I said, look, I'm, I had this thought. I I don't want to do it, but I thought, well, what if, and that scared me. And so I got help and sure enough, I found out that, yeah, it was a passive suicidal thought and, and that it was stemming out of this extreme anxiety and panic and doubt and fear that I was feeling every day. And I could slowly start to get it under control. That was the beginning of the management on top of being medicated and stuff like that. And it took about a year before I was able to kind of back up. Yeah. I want to thank you for sharing that. We share a similar incident in my story in stage combat. I think it's important just to acknowledge and that this is part of both of our stories so that anybody could at some point in their life have a similar thought. And I think the takeaway and what was great that you were able to do is to recognize, oh, this is a scary thought and I need to share it with somebody as you did. Yeah. And then discuss maybe getting a little extra help. And so I hope the takeaway from this for anyone listening is that if you have that kind of thought is to share it with someone that you trust and, you know, probably a good idea to get in touch with a mental health professional to help guide you through that. Yeah, absolutely. Knowing that I'm not alone and letting other people know that they're not alone is what keeps it from returning, at least in my life. And if I can do that for you, for someone else, that feeling of being alone is really what tips you kind of in over the edge. There's no help out there. And, yeah. and when I saw you post that you were coming out with this podcast, I was like, I have to let you know, I've never met you, but I have to let you know that you're not alone. That would not be okay. That would be even worse than me feeling it. I could not let you do that. That means a lot to me. You know, Brian, you were the first guy I've ever met that had a panic attack. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've talked to a lot of guys who have anxiety, but, you know, talking to you, we had a nice long talk on Zoom. Yeah. Uh, and you were the first guy. And, you know, I'm sure you agree with this. There is a stigma within the stigma of mental health when it comes to men. Absolutely. And it never occurred to me that I would have a panic attack collapse on the floor mm-hmm. because you, it's even internalized. It's like, I'm a guy. It's not going to happen to me. You know, and I'm sure you felt the same way. Yeah. And if it did happen to me, that would be a sign of extreme weakness. Absolutely. I came from a family that was like relatively, you know, a, a lot of military and stuff. And so you were kind of taught and raised that you had to be the breadwinner. You had to carry a lot of all of this on your shoulder and smile. And I'm sure you were told the same sort of things, you know, boys don't cry, man up, all those things are, they worm their ways into our souls more or less, right? And they program us in a way. Yeah. And that's what we've got to change. Absolutely. And, and in, in the work of mining our souls, yeah. you know, we mine our souls for some of this work. Yeah. And now you're not only mining that, but you're trying to manage a complete catastrophe, you know, going on inside that no one can see. And yeah, I just know it that there are so many men, especially young men going through training now that I just want to put my hand on their shoulder and say, you're going to be okay. And when it reaches that point, you've got to speak up and we're here to help. And we just want to remind our listeners, as you hear at the end of every episode of Stage Combat, that if you are in crisis, remember 
You can call the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline simply by dialing 988. Brian Shepard, thank you so much for sharing your story and, and sharing your vulnerability with me and our listeners. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thanks for, for doing this podcast on behalf of everybody out there. We all need to, to know that we're, we're kind of on the same team. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Remember, this podcast should not be considered a substitute for medical advice. So if you are experiencing any medical or mental health issues, please seek the advice of a mental health professional. Hey, Stage Combat listeners, Sean Hayden here to thank you for joining us for this episode of Stage Combat, A Mental Health Story. Be sure to join us for episode 10. It's called The 11 O'Clock Number. In our post-show talkback, mental health counselor Courtney Loving will be back with us. You'll recall she's a trauma therapist, and she's going to be talking with me about complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Stage Combat, a mental health story, is a production of Haywood Productions, LLC. Our consulting producer is Ian Southwood of Southwood Productions, LLC. This episode was recorded and edited by the remarkable Andrew Lynn, and it was directed and read by me, Sean Hayden. Please follow us on Instagram at Stage Combat the Podcast IG, and on Facebook and TikTok at Stage Combat the Podcast. And did you know you can also listen to episodes online at StageCombatThePodcast.com? You can also sign up for the Stage Combat newsletter. We would love to hear from you your comments, questions, maybe you would like to share your own experience. Email us at stagecombatthepodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to rate us five stars at your podcast platform. I hope today and every day brings you an opportunity to claim your story. I'll meet you over at episode 10. If you or someone you know is in crisis or contemplating self-harm, you can reach out to the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline by simply dialing or texting 988. That's 988. Mental health assistance is also available through the National Alliance on Mental Illness. It's a free nationwide peer support service providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. You can call the helpline at 1-800-950-6264 or text HELPLINE to 62640. That's 1-800-950-6264 or by text to 62640. The content within this episode should not be considered legal advice. Please consult with an attorney should you have any questions about any legal issue.